think a lot of the, say, generative AI, the best analogy I can come up with is that it's going to be like a cobot on the manufacturing production floor. There was a point in time when robotics had everyone scared that there'll never be anyone working in manufacturing ever again. And now when you think about that being available to basically everyone in the organization, from the IT shop and software development to legal, finance, we all have to think about what are the use cases where this is going to be helpful and where we can train these things up. And where is there just a lot of hype and it's not going to make any difference? Dollars. Dollars. Meaning you work with numbers? Oh, it's so much more than that. Modernization. By streamlining the process. So let's get right down to business. And modern problems require modern solutions. Elementary, my dear Holmes. Elementary. Consider it done. This is The Closers. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for joining me today. So excited to have you here with me on the record. Uh, You and I have spoken quite a bit over the years. Um, Lots of conversations around revenue automation, uh, data, processes, all those types of things. So excited for all of our listeners to hear some of our conversation today. Thanks, Em. I'm really excited to be here and look forward to a good, good chat. Awesome. Well, we always start these um, first, a little bit of like get to know you. We're going to start the episode with our off the ledger segment to get to know you a little bit before we get down to business. So let's roll. So kind of curious, your favorite thing to do when you wind down after work? What do I like to do after work? Uh, Well, without oversharing, um, I, one, like to get a workout in. I'm the kind of person that gets up and dives into work right away. Uh, so if I can, I'll usually try to get onto a tennis court or get onto my bike. Um, if I don't do it in the morning, it never happens. So I'm impressed you can do it at the end of your work day. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the questions I ask every guest, um, it's been an interesting sort of journey here and seeing the different types of, or hearing the different types of things that get, every guest has. But Curious how you refer to the holistic revenue process. So is it order to revenue, quote to cash, lead to cash, lead to reporting? We've heard kind of like a a run of the gamut, but curious how you refer to it. Oh, I love this question. (laughs) So we think about it at MGI Research, we think about it as the prospect to disclosure cycle. And the reason for that is if you think about how People want to engage with customers, prospects or customers in the B2B world. We're all trying to mimic or gain the benefits and create the same frictionless experience that we have in the B2C world. And in the B2C world, we have, uh, as sellers in a B2C world, we have the ability to track what people are doing online, bring in demographic data, all kinds of information. Right. So when we're beginning to prospect, we already know a lot about our prospect or customers. And so there's this ability to already engage from a marketing point of view and bring in operational data, by the way, and revenue information, right, into that conversation early. Um, If you think about whether it's order revenue or quote to cash or quote to revenue, Those are all concepts that came out of really the 1970s, 1980s, Mm -hmm. and the systems that were 
built to support that kind of process, which was this linear Chevron chart kind of process mm-hmm. that was done that way because the systems could only use the resources that they had at the time, right? Storage was expensive. Memory was expensive. Compute capacity was expensive. Mm-hmm. And so they were relatively, uh, not relatively, they were extremely um, uh, kind of very fat-grained processes with not a lot of granularity. Mm -hmm. And today, again, going back to that B2C, B2B distinction, we now have the ability to create systems where we pull in a lot of information, what we know about a, a prospect, and then we can bring that all the way through in maybe multiple systems, right? From our GL to a billing system, to a revenue accounting system, RevRec system, to operational systems, to support, to ultimately the disclosure, right? Which has got to happen. Even if we're a private company, there's disclosures. So we think of it that as a holistic cycle and not a linear process, so it's a it's a very I guess different take on so we would say quote to cash is dead, long live prospect to disclosure. I love that. And it's funny, I'm gonna have to add that to the list now because <laughs> there's been such an evolution. I thought I'd get sort of like a tick the box of A, B, or C. And um I don't know that I've had anybody agree with any of the ones I suggested as of yet. So <laughs> very, very interesting, and I'll definitely add that to the list. Excellent. Um, so curious if you could just give us a little bit about yourself, um, you know, how you um, got to MGI, what's kind of led you to that and and what you're interested and excited about right now. Okay. So I started out in this world, um, gosh, I'm not going to say exactly, but let's say over 30 <laughs> years ago. Fair. Actually was really fortunate because I worked with a couple, the, the two folks who invented enterprise resource planning, the whole concept of ERP. And it's funny because looking back, no one would believe this, but there were days when we would go in and pitch the concept of ERP and literally get thrown out of people's offices, (laughs) right? Like people would say, no, that's never happening. You guys are crazy. That's a stupid concept. Please leave. (laughs) And now look where it is. (laughs) And now it's overrun the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was a great education and a great way to learn a lot of different businesses, a lot of different industries, and to see inside of the core processes of organizations. And at that point in time, you know, if you go back to the early 90s, a lot of companies hadn't documented their processes. They had this whole wide array of different stovepipe applications. None of it was connected it was very hard to run a global business. So I was really lucky to get into the world of IT and business systems at a point in time when that was all taking off. And then today uh, at MGI Research, I founded that with two folks that I started that I worked with over the years who all come out of the enterprise software space. Um, and we... <laughs> We focus on the world of what we call, as you know, agile monetization. 
which is kind of rethinking if you just focused within the world of prospect to disclosure, uh, um, kind of rethinking or recasting how organizations monetize um, and all the different systems that are involved with that and the kind of processes and co-processes that are involved with that. So it's really fun because it's an, uh, it's where a lot of companies are investing. Uh, it's where a lot of change is happening and it's at the very core of every company. It really is. It's, you know, um, I think you've kind of seen that evolution. You've been part of that evolution all the way through. So why is the work that you folks do so important and necessary to all of your clients and to those that leverage all of the analysis and reports that you have available to everyone um, based on technology needs and that sort of thing? Uh, um, in part, I think it's because we take a holistic view towards whether you call it quote to cash or quote to revenue or lead to revenue or prospect to disclosure. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, in part, it's because we take this holistic view of that um, and can, if if clients want to dive into one particular area, whether it's revenue recognition, whether it's quoting, pick any any area along kind of the spectrum or anywhere in the cycle, it's the ability to see kind of the, the bigger picture and then also to be able to drill in very narrowly because every organization is different and where they have friction in their process or processes is typically different. And we always get this question of, of okay, show us, you know, name five companies, Andrew, that do this really well. And I say, well, I'll give you five companies that do one or two pieces of this really well and explain how they're struggling in the other two or three areas, right? And I think that ability to see the whole picture and kind of bring best practices or share them at least is maybe helpful. Yeah. Now, I think, you, you know, I've seen your team is really focused on the needs of um, technology vendors, buyers, investors. What do you see right now as some of the biggest needs or the um, hottest topics that you're like thinking about, talking about, and and researching? Uh, it's funny because it's a lot of the <clears throat> a lot of the things that have been perennial challenges for organizations. It's like they never go away. You know, one reporting is a constant struggle for organizations. And right behind that, I think, is data quality, data cleanliness, probably the least sexy topic. No one owns it. And yet, when you look at why does it take so long to generate profitability analysis by product, by country, et cetera, let's talk about systems and data quality, right? So I, those are hot topics. Um, there's still an enormous amount of focus around how organizations are trying to evolve their monolithic ERP systems. Kind of how do you bring that forward without throwing everything out? Where do you start? Where do you get the biggest benefit? So how do you approach something like that with your clients? Because there's probably some situations where maybe their ERP is enough, Maybe there's situations where it needs to be there. There needs to be a subledger added to handle something. How do you approach those projects with your clients to really determine what it is that's ultimately best for them? 
So we start with first trying to understand their industry, where they fit in their industry, and what the maturity of the organization is. And so there's a real difference, as you know, as you know, there's a real difference between companies that are in highly competitive markets where uh, even today in today's economy, it's about time to market. How do you bring products out? How do you iterate quickly? Uh, and then how do you kind of support that through all the downstream systems? Um, and, you know, conversely, there are organizations that are in, you know, industries where there's maybe a duopoly <laughs> and it's more about how do I uh, drive more efficiency? Um, how do you create a better customer experience uh, to reduce churn? So it really starts with kind of what industry you're in, how mature is your organization, what's the art of the possible versus the theoretical. So interesting. The, the work that you all do is always something that I, I find really intriguing. You've been coined with saying the best advice you never want to hear but must by actually a former associate of yours, I believe, um, said that that was your your quote. Can you share with us um, some of your best advice in the industry that we really don't want to hear but must? <laughs> I think uh, specifically the topic we're talking about, monetization, prospect to disclosure, um, a lot of companies need to change. They They have to change and don't necessarily want to. And to really change, it takes a real strong leader in the organization that says, we want to make this happen. And that can be really tough because when you look at certainly the average uh, tenure of, say, a CIO is what, maybe 36 months, maybe four years at the out, you know, at the outer edge, who wants to embark on a process that's core to the business uh, where there's risk involved when you could take the easy way out. And so when people talk about wanting to create a better customer experience or digital transformation, it often is taking the easiest path versus what's really going to drive real change that's going to create uh, a, an upside surprise in earnings or a real change in your competitive position in the market. It's such a, a true statement that you make. And I think, especially when it comes to um, finance professionals, sometimes it's hard to think about changing what it is that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. And curious how you navigate some of those conversations, because you know I, I see it in our line of business sometimes where the idea of the um, work ahead or the level of effort is sometimes almost, you know, almost too much to bear, but really it's just because of like, how do I fit it in what I'm doing today when really ultimately it could help expand the possibilities and help growth longer term. It's just sort of getting over that, that hump to know or feel comfortable that it's a risk that, you know, someone's willing to take. How do you navigate and help folks who maybe are stuck in that um, or leaders that might be stuck in that uh, do I, don't I type of situation where they're trying to figure out just how much they should take on to change at a given time. I imagine you speak with a number of leaders trying to contemplate just that and how it fits into their overall 
company purview? If you think about it, change is in some ways uh, a muscle that has to be exercised, just like introducing price changes or price uplifts. And if we talk about what's happening today in the market, everyone is facing inflation. Companies that haven't raised prices in years are now confronted. They've, they've been holding on, holding on, holding on, and now have to go to their customers and say, you know what, I have to pass on some of these costs. The companies, in that case, the companies that have the muscle of raising prices on a frequent basis, for them, this whole inflationary period has been really easy because their, their customers were conditioned for this. Their sales organization was conditioned to it. Right, the whole everyone in the organization, from sales to support to finance, um, and when you think about change, uh, it's a similar kind of muscle. Where if you're not exercising, right, if you're not adapting and, and adopting new things on a frequent basis, then it becomes really hard to change. So the first thing is just build that muscle. It, it's such an it's such a unique way to look at that. I've actually never thought of it that way, but there's probably so many aspects to it that make it that much easier because maybe it's change management's already in place. Folks who are who have recognized the benefits of change over time, so more willing to maybe take on some of that risk of of change or being more open to it. Um, and then there's probably also something to just if it is that muscle. Um, not just being open to it, but then also being able to be a little more flexible in the ebbs and flows of any of these types of initiatives that can be um, sometimes very challenging, um, depending on what the situation is or what's going on in the market at the time, or even resources within the company. Curious if you if you kind of see that, and if any area in particular is more of a blocker than others, or is it all sort of equally as I'll say impactful. Well, I think, you know, if you think about um, organizations that are, say, changing, you know, trying different pricing models constantly, um, they have a finance team that supports that and is willing to generate new reports and analysis. Uh, if you have a sales team that's hyper-creative with deal structures, everything else follows, Right. And everyone kind of rolls with the punches, as they say, um, it, it, you know, all the way down to the auditors, right? If you have an organization where there's very little change and then suddenly you're trying to bring about a whole bunch of change, everyone all the way down to the auditors starts to get a little nervous. Hey there, I'm M. Daigle, passionate revenue accountant and general manager for Zora Revenue. I've been working on something really exciting that I don't think you're going to want to miss. On September 12th, we're going to be hosting our very first Modern Accounting Summit with our friends at EY, PwC, and Deloitte. It's a virtual event, and we're offering CPE credits for it. So please join us as we talk about our State of Revenue Accounting report. We're also going to be talking about generative AI as it relates to accounting workflows. And we're going to have a roundtable discussion with a number of accounting leaders. So again, you're not going to want to miss it. And if you can't join us live, please still register 
because you'll be eligible for those CPE credits even when you watch on demand. Hope to see you there. Let's jump to the general ledger. Can you share with us an example of how some of the research that MGI does and conducts has um, directly contributed to some of the success of some of your clients? So the e- an easy example is always in helping people identify revenue leakage. We have yet, I should say, we have yet to go into a company and not find somewhere between 3 to 5% revenue leakage. The challenge is when you find something, say, 5% or above, how do you go and recover that fully? Because you may not, let's say, have been billing customers properly for some time. Now you got to have an uncomfortable conversation. And, and how do you go back and mitigate that? <laughs> right. But to your, to your question, that's the easy example. Um, I think there are other examples when you look at, say, helping organizations with a, a, a faster, more agile technology evaluation process. And we go about those one kind of injecting speed and agility into those, but also leaving our clients with the tools so that they can do it in every one of their evaluations, not just the project that, that we're involved with. That's, and I love that because that's even a, a longer term value from what it is that you're, you're providing. Um, what are some of the methodologies that MGI uses to conduct some of the analysis or strategic initiatives um, that you help your clients with that lead to that long-term value? So we're a heavily kind of quant-oriented firm. So, uh, you know, we say in a cheeky way that numbers count. So when we do say vendor evaluations, we believe in, in having a quant framework for that so that it's not at the end of the day a beauty contest between supplier a and b but it's saying okay let's put a an absolute score on say agility right let's put a score on cultural fit there's a lot of things that in the past have been kind of squishy judgment calls where if you bring a framework and a quantitative framework you can actually score all of those things so that it's not just, okay, roughly how fast is it to implement this, but let's score time to implement, ease to implement, cost to implement. And then let's also go score what's the time, ease, and cost of making changes in a system 6, 12, 36 months after you've gone live. So we're a big believer in in scoring things uh, and coming up with an absolute number at the end as a way to help organizations make decisions. I really like that approach. I think when we do that in our business, one of the things that I find really difficult and would love your your thought on is around some of the sometimes it's it's a little hard to quantify things that are a little more qualitative, but curious how you kind of approach that. Is there like a standard scale you use? Is that um, maybe, it, or is there some other kind of approach that you take to that? Because sometimes those costs are a little harder to or um, quantify, but 
it sounds like you're putting that even on some qualitative type of considerations. So curious how you how you approach that. So part of it is going back to one of the things I said earlier, which is understanding what kind of company, it helps understand what kind of company you are and being self-honest about the resources that you have at hand because that's going to dictate a lot of kind of the downstream actions and outcomes. So if you're an organization that has unbelievable development resources and is very technical from the management team all the way down, it's going to be a lot easier to adopt kind of cutting edge technologies that maybe aren't completely finished, right? Where you're going to have to do some coding yourself. Um, and you're going to get a different outcome because of that. Um, and so when you then start scoring the solutions, you can say, okay, based off of what we're bringing to the table, we can think about some of these things that are hard to kind of assess, like implementation times or even down to specific phases like data cleansing, right? Because you know yourself. And you know, similarly, if you're an organization that hasn't invested in say data quality, since I'm picking <laughs> on that topic. You know, if, if you haven't invested in that and you don't know your use cases, it's going to take you longer. And and consequently, you're going to know immediately that change management is going to be harder because you're that type of, you know, maybe more conservative company. Well, and you, you know, it's funny, you're saying you're picking on data quality, but I think it's probably the one thing that is most consistently a consideration. I was going to say an issue, but I think I'll change it to consideration. Um, just in in the companies that I have um, the pleasure of of working with, it is most often um, where we where we ultimately start trying to figure out what we're even dealing with from a from a data perspective. Do you find the same thing with your clients that that's sort of a a consistent I'll say challenge or consideration across the board? It's a real consideration. And it usually starts with uh, a senior executive saying, well, our business isn't that <laughs> complex. We're not that hard. When the folks in the trenches know, uh, to pull, you know, to pull this report together means I have to go to six different data sources, update these two spreadsheets, Right. So it absolutely. And that's goes back to data quality, the timeliness of the data. There's so many pieces to that. Curious. One of the things that we always deal with, too, is um, like the example you just gave. So maybe a leader in the company is like, you know, it's not that hard. They always feel like they get their reports, for example, on time or, you know, maybe they're not the folks that feel the biggest pain in pulling some of that reporting together. Where do you see the light go on for some of those leaders as you get into some of these projects and maybe some of those data challenges or considerations bubble up and maybe impact the project? Is that something that you see kind of evolve as you go through um, a, a particular project or initiative? I one place that it comes through is when 
when you start to free up time for the finance team at the end of the month or the end of the quarter, and because they're in such a good position to see what's going on across the business, that if they have the time to actually apply analysis at more than just putting it all together, uh, then all the senior finance folks kind of breathe, one, breathe a sigh of relief, but two, more importantly, get to do the stuff that they really feel is going to add real value. And the business ends up seeing that too. And it must also impact some of the other, this this has been something we've talked about on other podcasts as well, is it's kind of elevating the role of the accountants or or the finance folks who may have previously been just number crunchers, right? Pulling together, cobbling together all of this data, putting it into a report and kind of handing it over as quickly as they can. Instead, really feeling like they are able to impact the business, that they have a say in it, that they are part of the strategy. Um, and then to your point, though, then it allows the the leadership um, finance folks to be able to kind of take a step back as well and level up even more. So it sort of is like a, a domino effect, if you would, or if you will, across the the organization, which is really interesting as well. As we end here, I just wanted to think about the future of accounting. So how do you anticipate, Andrew, the the evolving landscape of digital transformation and these monetization strategies over the next few years? Is there any way that you and, and the rest of your colleagues at MGI are preparing? Are there certain things that you're advising your clients on? What is that looking like for you right now? One is trying to encourage folks. So I think the successful organizations are going to continue to focus on time to market um, and continue to focus on reducing stroke, eliminating revenue leakage and automating as much as possible. Cause it's the only way, ultimately it's the only way you grow and scale, uh, efficiently and effectively. And businesses are on such a scale, even relatively small companies are on such a scale that it's the only way to get things done. Because you just it's it's beyond the ability to add another person or add more people or bring in temps at the end of the quarter. So I think continuing to help organizations kind of see the need to innovate around pricing, packaging, and then with that, the need to automate everything that's goes with that to make a a a, a you know, easier, kind of more frictionless experience ultimately for the customer and for everyone internally. And be able to be flexible along the way, depending on what's working and what's not, I imagine, as well. Exactly. Because I everyone's trying to figure out what's the, the new, new thing or the new, new normal. And we could be, I mean, we do all kinds of macro, you know, scenario modeling we could be in a period of um, of relatively high inflation. It's not that inflation's that high today, but we could have elevated inflation above the Fed rate target of 2% for quite some time. We could have supply chain disruptions for quite some time, two, three, maybe four years. So where we've had a lot of cycles 
in the recent past that have been pretty quick and rapid, we may be having to adapt to a lot of different change, uh, some of it or maybe all of it mm-hmm. all at once. You know, economic change, economic pressures, geopolitical pressures, um, and we're going to have to adapt to that. And it's not like it's going to get to this next level of kind of relatively predictable, steady-as-it-goes kind of business, but of constant, constant change. I think you're right. And the the it's not just constant change, but the pace of that change, too. I think maybe even a decade ago, it's it's drastically different than it is today, where I don't want to say it was a set it and forget it type of situation, but everything's changing so quickly and so rapidly that in order to keep up, you almost require that automation to be able to stay in the game against your competitors because whether it's market conditions or geopolitical conditions or maybe it's even, you know, your competitors suddenly going to market in a new way and if you don't um, adopt something similar or, or rethink how you're pricing and packaging, they're going to leave you in the dust. So it's really interesting about how quickly everything changes today. But I think a lot of that is probably due to the technology that's allowing for that. And so it's just, we're like on this treadmill that just keeps going faster and faster. So in order to keep up, it it really does probably require some of that, that transformation or maybe rethinking monetization strategies. Absolutely. And and core business strategies. Look at all the companies today that are looking at uh, setting up or basically hiving off their systems mm-hmm. in China so that if they had to completely sever ties with their operations there from a systems point of view, from an accounting point of view, they could do it mm-hmm. quickly. That's the kind of goal right now. But things could change very quickly, and suddenly that could become a necessary reality. Absolutely. And I think another reality we're facing, um, something I love to bring up now, um, just because I find it so incredibly interesting, is, um, and, and you've actually reposted an article from The Economist recently about AI and its effect um, or, or not on the job market. And curious what your opinion is on um, why critical thinking is still king. Like, why is that something that you you may feel passionate that is still so critical to, to business today? Ultimately, everyone, we're each in our own individual jobs and as organizations, as teams and as companies, have to think about how can we take advantage of these tools and what's the unique benefit uh, and I think a lot of the, the a lot of these a lot of say generative AI, the the best analogy I can come up with is that it's going to be like a cobot uh, on the manufacturing production floor, which is it's not that every you know there was a point in time when robotics had everyone scared that there'll never be anyone working in manufacturing ever again. The last time I walked through even the Tesla plant or SpaceX. There's plenty of people working on the shop floor, but there's also a lot of cobots helping people lift, move, shift, uh, accelerate the production process. And now when you think about that being available to basically everyone in the organization, from the IT shop and software development to legal, finance, 
we all have to think about what are the use cases where this is going to be helpful and where we can train these things up. And where is there just a lot of hype and it's not going to make any difference? And I think, curious how you think about this as well, but I'm always trying to think like, not necessarily how can it replace my job, but more how can it help me? Because I actually feel like rather than it replacing me, I feel like it could make my job a lot easier or at least maybe even more fulfilling. Curious if you have thoughts on that too. I completely agree with that. I think the the, the winners are going to be the organizations that lean in really aggressively, not with the idea of, oh, we're going to eliminate all these jobs or we're going to have this massive transformation, but just look at how incrementally individual jobs departmental functions, et cetera, can change uh, and improve faster. Totally agree. And I've seen a shift sort of as people have been talking about generative AI and what does it mean? I've almost seen a shift over the past, say, three to six months where was that like fear initially, but I start to see this, this evolution of folks being a bit more open to what it means to them, which I'm happy to see. And hopefully that means it's even better for all of us as well. It's sort of like history repeats itself. It's just in a slightly different way. (laughs) So final question, Um, what's the one accounting trend that you've seen recently or um, have seen a lot more of recently that you think would be important to share with all of our audience? I don't know if there's, I always come back to, you know, just like data quality, it's like the boring stuff. I always come back to the things that are the kind of meat and potatoes, boring things and just continuous improvement on those versus the one shiny object. I don't know if I've got a good answer. I think it's a good answer actually. And you know, I'm maybe you can be the one to crack the code on data once and for all so that it doesn't have to be the thing everybody keeps talking about. (laughs) And if you do look me up because I've got lots of folks that can uh, leverage that for sure. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure, as always, chatting with you. And I look forward to having you back again. Thanks. My pleasure, Em. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. 